This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly. We do want to bring in our legal eagle. She's June Grasso. She's legal analyst and co-host of Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law Law in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Um, June, let's go to this. This is the first time that we have heard uh, Christine Blasey Ford publicly talk about those allegations that could, you know, let's just say it, could derail Brett Kavanaugh's nomination for the Supreme Court and and maybe even go further, kind of redefine the Me Too era. Um, She did say, I couldn't remember every detail, but she didn't waver on her core accusation. Sum it up for us, pros and cons from that roughly four-hour testimony before the Senate committee this morning. Well, I most people who watched think she came across as very credible. And the fact that you don't remember certain details makes it more likely that your story is credible because everyone doesn't remember everything. And she also said she was 100% certain that she, this was not a case of mistaken identity, which is really, as far as looking at her testimony, what the Republicans will probably hone in on that, yes, this happened to you because you don't want to say anymore in this Me Too movement that it didn't happen to you. This happened to you, but you're mistaken about who it was. So she was asked that a couple of times. She said she was 100% certain. I believe that the way this was set up was a disadvantage for the Republicans. They had it set up so that the Democrats asked five-minute questions or five minutes to talk about their different opinions, and the Republicans had hired an outside prosecutor to come in and do the questioning. The problem was that the prosecutor was not used to asking five-minute questions and then being taken to another, you know, having somebody else question. So the way that was set up really didn't work for a prosecutor questioning. Another thing was... And they did that to kind of avoid the optics of the Clarence Thomas nomination hearings and Anita Hill of, you know, a slew of men testifying, not testifying, but questioning Anita Hill. So that's what they were trying to do. And that that seemed to be a, a good idea, not to have that optic. But the problem was that she's a prosecutor. She's used to asking questions, making a foundation for the questions, then asking questions, and then when another witness comes up, being able to show inconsistencies. Well, here she's not able to do right, any of that. Right. She wasn't able to different. lay the foundation. She, Even if there were certain... The only con- inconsistency that really stood out was, and I don't even know if you'd call it an inconsistency, was that she didn't want to come fly here, and there was a question of, well, she has flown before. She's flown to Hawaii. I don't know right. how much that really was a hit on her credibility. But the point is, even if there were inconsistencies, they don't have any witnesses to bring them forward. Right, right. Uh, I want to bring in Jordan Rubin. He's legal editor at Bloomberg Law, joining us from Arlington, Virginia. Jordan, what did you make of the testimony so far? What stood out as the key elements here? 
Well, I think the key elements that stood out is that uh, the witness uh, came across as someone who was uh, willing to concede when she didn't remember something, but again uh, stood firm into the main points of her testimony, namely that her accuser was, uh, that the person she was accusing uh, was in fact uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and that there was no issue of mistaken identity from her view. And so I think the main takeaway is uh, she did some things that looking at it objectively are the things that good witnesses at a trial or hearing will generally do. And Jordan, what does Brett Kavanaugh need to do at this point? We'll be hearing from him shortly. What do you expect beyond, obviously, the prepared testimony that we've already seen? What does he need to do in order to essentially salvage this nomination, it feels like? Well, I'd say if this were a trial, perhaps there's nothing that he could do. But really, the answer in terms of what he has to do, uh, if anything, is up to the Republicans on the committee and then really in the full Senate, because ultimately, this is not a trial, but a a political question. And so perhaps the question in their mind was already answered even before the testimony on both sides. And so even if someone were to say uh, Ford did a great job, and maybe even if Kavanaugh does not do a good job, that doesn't preclude him being confirmed, because again, it's up to potentially who has the votes here. It's fascinating. I, you know, I do wonder, Ju- uh, June, at this point, you know, it, does the Senate Judiciary Committee, do the Republicans kind of regret having a prosecutor doing the questioning? I would think that they would because I think, and also I think you heard some of the frustration with Lindsey Graham when it wasn't his turn saying things because the frustration of having to sit there and have someone else ask your questions when you're so used to doing it. But we don't know what would have happened on the other end if we'd had the senators actually questioning her, whether it would have gone any better because she was very credible. Jason, bringing up once again that issue of why not telling us sooner, it's an issue that we dig into in Business Week uh, in the remarks in the U.S. edition of the magazine about why women don't come forward. And there's you know, lots more in terms of just psychological uh, impact in these cases, these sexual assault cases uh, on women. There are economic implications. There's a lot of reasons why women don't come forward. Right. And it's clear from the way that Dr. Ford has described her life over the past three decades that it had a profound impact on her life, her career, her choice of career, all of those different things. Uh, And what you heard Lindsey Graham talk about there was in part around what he perceives as a delay up until the last minute of this uh, confirmation process. Uh, Dr. Ford apparently had sent a letter to her member of Congress, uh, as well as Senator Feinstein, out in California. Let's bring back in June Grasso, legal analyst and co-host of Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law, as well as Jordan Rubin, legal editor for Bloomberg Law, joining us on the phone from Arlington, Virginia. June here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So June, what was your reaction to what you just heard from Lindsey Graham there? Well, I thought when he said that um, it's some good advice for her to go and, and get some help, I think that that is something from the past. I think, you know, in light of the Me Too movement, and let's just say that we had hashtag Me Too, and now we're having hashtag Why Didn't Come Forward. Right. So I think that he's behind the times in saying something like that. And the thing is, so there was delay, but this is where we are now. I was just going to say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the situation in terms of the timing, you know, whether or not it was political, you know, both sides of the aisle play a lot of political games. Putting that aside, the point is we have to figure out what happened. It's, you know, he said, she said, 
right to some extent at right. this point and yeah. so trying to figure out well, what if, ultimately happened do you need extra people do you need other people to testify um on either her behalf his behalf to kind of figure out what happened here june i would think and this is not a court of law as we've said and as many of the senators said today but if this were a court of law you would call everyone who was in that room or allegedly in that room to see what they said and so to call for corroboration and say there's no corroboration when there is someone who was allegedly there who's not being called if this were court, that wouldn't be allowed, but it's not. And as was said this morning, this is not a court of law, right. but it is a job for the right. highest court in the land. So, Jordan, come back in here because I think one of the things we're all trying to parse here is the law and the political aspect of this. And clearly you saw that a little bit at the fore with Lindsey Graham's comments there. How do you square that? You're someone who obviously looks very closely at the, at the legal side of this, but but you also understand the the politics as well. Sure. I think no matter how much uh, legal jargon or how much sort of uh, pretense of a legal proceeding is injected to this, at the end of the day, we're talking about a political calculation. Um, the senators do not have to explain why they vote the way that they do. There's no clear burden of proof that there is that they need to meet in terms of when they cast their vote, like there might be the uh, beyond a reasonable doubt standard that we need to be proved in a, in a criminal trial. And so you take Senator Graham's remarks. Uh, he's reached his own uh, political conclusion. And that's his uh, right to do that. And so ultimately, I think we see is that even if we do have testimony like we had uh, from Ms. Ford, uh, which perhaps some people find uh, credible, perhaps someone might say she's a good witness, uh, if you're coming from Senator Graham's perspective where there's sort of impropriety in the timing of when things are being brought, if it's being looked at as sort of a orchestrated Democratic hit on a nominee, uh, then that might not sway uh, someone like Senator Graham or other Republicans to ultimately uh, vote for Kavanaugh despite how well Ms. Ford might testify. You know, June, we're all captivated by this. Uh, So much of Wall Street, Washington, Main Street watching um, these hearings today. Does it move the process forward? The process of the confirmation process? I guess, yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's so political, the confirmation process. It's become more and more politicized over the years. Long gone are the days when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was had you know majority of senators voting for her confirmation. So it's become very political. And particularly with this seat, because it is Justice Kennedy's seat, and right. Justice Kennedy was the swing vote. Right. Ele- you know, one. you would say that he had more power on that court than the chief for the last several years as the swing vote on all these important issues. So it's really more political. And moving it forward, it depends on, what the, as, as he said, whether the political analysis for these yeah. senators is, I can't vote for this man because... June Grasso, thank you so much. Legal analyst, co-host of Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law, following this very closely for us at Bloomberg News, along with Jordan Rubin, also following it, legal editor at Bloomberg Law, uh, Law, excuse me, on the phone from Arlington. Your love me I've ever been All right, yep, we continue to see the markets uh, grind higher and higher. Dow, in fact, as you heard from Charlie, up about 100 Nine points. NASDAQ up about 64. S&P up about 13. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in terms of uh, the markets and strategy, uh, because it's been quite a week. 
pick your day. There's been lots of stuff coming out and it continues. Let's find uh, some perspective and implications for investors. Britt Ewing is Chief Market Strategist at First Financial Services with, with us on the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. Brett, good to have you here on this Thursday with Jason and myself. Um, it is what a week. Uh, and I feel like each day has felt like five. Uh, so having said that, you know, the markets do continue to move higher, although we did see a little bit of a blip, a pullback yesterday following uh, the Fed press conference uh, with Jay Powell. Uh, based on what you got from the Fed, what kind of market environment could we see uh, through the next of the year? Maybe take us out six months, 12 months. I think that the, I think the market's just digesting the, the, the Fed's uh, speech yesterday, uh, Chairman Powell. But uh, it looks like it rebounded nicely today. Look, we think the trend is still in place. I think the, the environment will be tougher. I mean, there's some certain, certainly some headwinds as far as what the Fed said yesterday. Um, they're going to continue to raise rates, it looks like, quarterly almost, almost through 2019, um, where we stand today. And that's definitely changing the environment. Carol, it's already showing up in interest-sensitive industries. If you look at the housing Look at the like KB Homes. Look at some of these housing stocks. They are absolutely getting demolished. It's like the housing market is evaporated here recently. Yeah, but you know, just to jump in there, you know, we've had two years with the housing numbers and housing names. I mean, KB Homes was up more than 100 percent last year and up 28 percent the year before. So they've had quite a run. Yeah, I and, mean, and I, have and have kind of come back into the market and have resumed building. Right, so we're kind of uh, balancing the market perhaps once again. Maybe so, or maybe maybe the market is telling us it's forward-looking, you know, it's not mm-hmm. backwards-looking. Yeah. Maybe it's telling us that these interest rates are going to really put a damper on the housing market, you know. So that's the way we look at it, a uh, forward-looking mechanism. So, so Brett, i got to ask you, we devote a lot of the issue of Bloomberg Business Week this week to trade and tariffs, trying to unpack what the implications of that of those moves from the Trump administration have been and may be, to your point – going forward. How do you factor that in? Because it feels like we're getting a little more evidence here of how, especially some of the tariffs may play through right down to consumer brands like Home Depot and others. Absolutely. I mean, we, uh, we feel that a lot of, a lot of companies are uh, being affected by this. I mean, Powell said yesterday that you know, it, they haven't seen major impacts from the tariffs thus far, but they're really just starting to, to be implemented here. Right, and, um, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that jumped out to both Carol and me as we were listening was this idea that he said they're getting reports from the regional reserve banks about their own members starting to raise this as something that was starting to to play through businesses. Does that concern you or how much does that concern you as an investor? It well any any time we have an event like that it's it's very concerning. Um we feel the market is digesting the the trade war as it is today. What our real concern is and what we believe is that the market has not priced in a major escalation from here. Uh, and that's the concern I would have for investors. So what do you say? Uh, what's the strategy to adopt at this point? Are you pulling back a little bit? Well, I think you need to take a stand. I mean, you either believe this is going to escalate or you ha- take the mindset that uh, some some negotiations will take place and 
and eventually we're going to have China, you know, capitulate and come back to the table, and we give a little, and and they do as well. And I think that's the camp that we're we're in right now. Is we believe that some deals are going to be done with Japan, Europe. We've already seen discussions with Mexico, and I really do believe Canada and the United States will get something on the table here within the next few months. So, so you're not. So it sounds like you're fairly sanguine about this. You're not so worried that you're dramatically changing your strategy. Then, well, I, I think that what we are doing is taking advantage of the opportunities that it's given us. So I look out there uh, around the globe. I truly believe that we had a global reset in equity markets at early 2016, and I believe there's a global expansion occurring. I think that the trade discussion has created an opportunity and has set back some of these international markets and emerging markets, and I think it's temporary. And so what we think is this is a great opportunity to rebalance and take a, and take a look at some of the emerging markets and, and also some of the developing markets. Right. We've, we've started to hear some people saying that maybe it's time to, uh, to tiptoe maybe back into those emerging markets. Brett Ewing, thank you so much. Chief Market Strategist at First Franklin Financial Services. So be my guest. You've got nothing to lose. Won't you let me take you on a sea cruise? Ooh-wee. Yeah, we're going to talk about the cruise industry. We have the perfect guest to do so. We're talking about Carnival Cruise Line President Christine Duffy. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio with us on this Thursday. So nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, first I got to get some business out of the way. <laughs> um, Carnival. We are a business network. <laughs> we are. So I've been reminded. Um, out with earnings, third quarter earnings and revenue better than expected. Fourth quarter metrics falling short a bit, which is why the stock's been down about 5% today. What can you tell us about what are, what are investors do you guys think are missing about the results? So I think as Arnold Donald, our CEO, said on the call today, we delivered uh, for Q3 the highest uh, earnings that uh, the corporation has ever seen. And, you know, we're comping against uh, last year at this time, hurricane season. Uh, so I think it's a really positive story. We're, we just took uh, delivery of one of our new ships earlier this year. That ship was in New York all season uh, for the summer, and we've mm-hmm. just moved her down to Miami. So we're we're pretty positive the, about and the outlook our, looks good our in terms business of- in Q in Q one, which Arnold was also asked about uh, for Carnival specifically, given that we're the largest brand with um, most of our capacity in the Caribbean. Um, with higher occupancy and uh, higher yields, so for uh, looking forward. So, Christine, I got to do some size and scope here because we are Bloomberg. Uh, after all, forty thousand employees, twenty-six ships, five million. These are the important numbers: five million annual passengers, including seven hundred thousand kids. You know a thing or two about consumer demand, consumer sentiment. What are people looking for at this moment? What are you hearing come back from your customers? You know, I think for our guests, and we're now at 800,000 children well, a year and, yeah. you know, well over wow, 5 I million. Yes. Yeah. So, nice homework there, yeah, JK. Yeah. With a fleet of 26 ships. Yeah. Uh, 50% of our itineraries are shorter cruises. So we really, I like to say, we're the tip of the corporate spear because it really gives people who have never cruised before an opportunity to try it out. And so. The first time I ever got on a cruise ship, I was in college and it was from Miami. 
Miami and I went to the Bahamas for a day, like left in the morning, came back at night. So ours aren't quite that short. Yeah, I know. This was but short. three, four, five days, we're definitely seeing people much more focused on experiences. And so mm-hmm. with consumer sentiment so high and positive, travel, multi-generational travel, people traveling with their families is, is really popular. Well, I've talked with you guys and Arnold specifically about the millennials and going after that, right? Because those are the folks you hope to capture and then have them take cruises for years. How's that going? Because I know that there was talks about going places and then kind of doing um, things where you're kind of giving back to the community. Are you still... Where are you guys? So with our Fathom brand, we continue to do that through shore excursion products. But I also like to remind everyone that the boomers are a pretty big uh, population. And a lot of the travel we're seeing with multi-generational are boomers actually paying for their millennial children and grandchildren to go on vacation together. Millennial children have all the luck. I'm just telling you. (laughs) Um, it's interesting too. You mentioned about a new ship. You guys, um, capital expenditures. I mean, tell me what you're what you're doing that makes you feel confident about the next year or two. Because we had, I'm trying to think, Jason, who was it from the Bloomberg uh, Global Business Forum or so, that was talking about in two years that they could see maybe a potential for a slowdown, like we're anticipating. I'm just curious what you Ken guys Griffin. are seeing. Ken, Ken Griffin, Griffin of Citadel. Citadel. Yeah. Like, what are you guys seeing that either gives you confidence about the economic outlook, and what kind of time frame do you feel like you have? So we continue to see strong demand for our brand and with the new ships. We have spread our capacity across 18 U.S. home ports. And 50% of the U.S. population can actually drive to a Carnival Cruise vacation, which makes it very accessible and also affordable, which is really one of the mainstays of our brand. So for us, I could see the concern if all of the all of our capacity was in one spot, but right. we've spread that out as we've brought Carnival Horizon, our newest ship, to Miami last week. We've moved Carnival Vista to Galveston, and so we've actually upsized our capacity uh, in Galveston, and again, that's been a very strong market for us in Texas. We announced uh, two months ago Carnival Panorama, which will be delivered at the end of 2019, is going to be going to Long Beach, California. And Jason, these ships are a little expensive, aren't they? Well, you know, they, they, vary, <laughs> they vary in price. They have uh, These new ships are larger. We have a lot more guest experiences that we know resonate with, yeah. with the people. But I'm just saying, to make us. that expenditure, you've got to go, feel pretty confident about it. Got to throw some CapEx on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, Christine, on Bloomberg Business, we like to talk strategy and leadership uh, with chiefs like yourself and you know we were talking a little bit before we came on air about candidly the lack of gender diversity in some of the top jobs i know you're in town in part to participate in a panel the the cruise industry actually is a bit of an anomaly outside of the rest of the business world where there's a lot of female leadership actually at the top of some of the key cruise lines why is that Well, I would say for Carnival Corporation, that's really been led by Arnold Donald, who's been our CEO for five years. Uh, When he came in, he appointed Jan Schwartz, uh, who is president of Princess Cruise Lines. And then he selected me, uh, and I joined the company uh, four years ago as the first uh, woman 
president for Carnival Cruise Line, our, our flagship brand. So he very much believes in diversity, but it's not just gender. It's mm-hmm. really diversity mm-hmm. of thinking and bringing together a team of people that come from very different backgrounds and experiences. Well, and I have to think that this becomes important, too, because when you think about household spending, you think about who's making the decisions. Right. I mean, that does factor in here. It, it has to, right? Well, I actually believe that finally, because of that, yeah. people <laughs> are will take action and think differently about how the makeup of the team and the thinking has to reflect society and consumers today. And whether that's gender, race, culture, we are really much more focused on, you know, as you say, who who's making the buying decisions and how right. do we make sure those voices are at the table as we're thinking about strategy and thinking about what our brand is all about and what we offer. But as you know, the data has been out there to say, put women in those senior positions, put them on boards, and those companies tend to do financially better. So I'm kind of tired about talking about it, frustrated. Your experience, why aren't more women getting to the C-suite? Is it the lack of pipeline? What is it? You know, some of it I think is there a lot of women do opt out. You know, when you get to this level, it is an all-consuming 24-7 role. I have 40,000 employees and so you you know we're on the road and that's not a choice that everyone wants to make uh i think that things are changing where companies are also being a lot more flexible than they used to be mm-hmm. in terms of the expectations for where people live and how do you move up in the organization and what kind of opportunities do we give people and i think by doing that, more, not just women, but I think more people will stay in and perhaps seek these these roles. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. I hope so. What a treat. Thank you so much. Safe travels. Christine Duffy, she's president at Carnival Cruise Line in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Master, my partner, Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.